You know, Jay, it's really weird to think that Days of Future Past started out as just one timeline. There are so many variations on that future now. I know. It's pretty ridiculous. Are there any timelines where the Fantastic Four's grown-up kid Franklin Richards actually survives? At least one. Fact, on Earth-967, he lives at least long enough to have a kid with Rachel Summers. Aw, that's awesome. It is really not. Oh, how so? Well, their kid grows up to be... What, a jerk? A power-mad despot bent on conquering all of time and space. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 346 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to Madripoor in the 1980s. That's right, we are segueing away from the main X-Men line for this week and looking... Well, going back in time a bit to look at the Wolverine arc, the Gehenna Stone Affair, mostly because it's a lot of fun. It is so much fun. So I think I may have mentioned uh, earlier this year, last year, what is time? I read through all of Wolverine Volume 2. Technically, the miniseries is Volume 1, so Volume 2 is what we think of as Volume 1. Anyway, point being, I read through the whole thing, and I think this was my favorite arc. It's six issues by Peter David. John Buscema and inks by Bilson Kevich, and it's delightful. Yeah, it's really pleasantly self-contained. It's a lot of fun. And while we're not going to cover the whole of the Wolverine ongoing, it seems like like a pleasant segue on the podcast and, you know, a good thing to slot in if, for instance, we were trying to avoid or procrastinate covering something else. Uh, purely hypothetically, of course. So I gotta say, um, I, I feel like I should disclaim that my head is not... <laughs> Not entirely in the game this week. Um, I I live in New York, and as we record this, it is substantially underwater. It uh it is. I I saw a video of the subways, and wow. Yeah, we're okay because we live on the second floor in an area with pretty high elevation and don't have a car. But um, it's it's been a fairly intense twenty four hours, especially if you throw in the the SCOTUS decision from this morning. So, um, oh, and the fact that I started grad school this week. It's been a lot. There's a lot going on here in month, I think, 21 of the year 2020. Something like, yeah. Yeah. But this arc is great. So at least there's that. So I guess we should talk about a bit of the context, uh, what's going on in Wolverine's life at this point in his history, since we are jumping way back in time from our current coverage. All right. So... Obviously, we are looking at the ongoing Wolverine series. At this point in the series, Wolverine is based in Madripoor. This is during the era when the X-Men were in Australia and everyone thought they were dead. Exactly. So after Fall of the Mutants. Now, we learned a lot about Madripoor in a Marvel Comics Presents story. That's numbers 1 through 10. And in Wolverine, number 1 through 10. All of that was by Chris Claremont. We talked about that in episode 113 of our show, Play It Again, Patch. Madripoor is the kind of town that exists for noir movies. It totally is, yeah. It's a small island nation south of Singapore. It's divided into the wealthy high town and the crime-ridden low town. 
probably there are a lot of racial stereotypes that are not great in there. If you haven't been listening to the podcast and your Marvel Universe is mostly the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe, you may recognize Madripoor as the setting of a good deal of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier show. Yeah, that was the place where Zemo danced and the internet memefied it to hell and back. I don't think I remember that. I mean, I remember Zemo dancing. I, I just don't remember the memification subsequently. It was a thing. It was a thing. Zemo is not a part of Madripoor in the era we're talking about, however, but Wolverine does have his own supporting cast there. Now, Wolverine himself goes by Patch, because he's got an eye patch, and he pretends that he's not Wolverine because the X-Men are supposed to be dead, and it's, um, not a great disguise. This is the arc where it's established canonically that everyone's just been playing along. Oh, it's great. But it's not just Patch hanging out here in Madripoor. Let's talk about some of Wolverine's friends who are going to factor into this arc. Well, there are two other characters from the larger Marvel Universe who are here, and those are Jessica Drew and Lindsay McCabe. Jessica Drew is usually Spider-Woman, but she isn't right now. She's a PI, and she's working for the shifty Prince of Madripoor to help keep Madripoor stable, to spy on his potential political enemies, etc. Lindsay McCabe is Jessica's partner. Yeah. And we also have Archie Corrigan, who showed up in Claremont's Madripoor arc. He's a pilot, which is always fun for Claremont, because then he can get very specific about airplanes. And he is, at least according to Wolverine, the best pilot Wolverine knows. Now, it wouldn't be Madripoor without the Princess Bar, the greatest dive in the city in Wolverine's home base. That is run by a fellow by the name of O'Donnell, or at least who goes by the name of O'Donnell. No first name, or no last name, depending. The Princess Bar is basically Rick's place from Casablanca. There's also Chief Inspector Ty, the cop that Logan sometimes works with and sometimes against, and the aforementioned Prince, who is a jerk, but I feel like if you're on Madripoor, you kind of have to be a jerk. He's a fun jerk, at least in this arc. Good fashion sense. So what do you say? Shall we dive into Wolverine number 11, Brother's Keeper? Let's do it. Oh, and the creative credits on the series, luckily for us, in a marvelous break, are almost all the same. The only thing that's going to shift from issue to issue are colorists, so after we've done the first issue credits, those are the only ones we're going to mention going forward. So this series, or arc I should say, is written by Peter David, penciled by John Buscema, inked by Bill Sienkiewicz, colored for number one by Mark Chiarello, and lettered by Ken Brzezinak. So, a lot of good D&D stories start in a tavern, right? Well, a lot of good Madripoor stories start in the Princess Bar, and this one in particular starts with a delightful page of Logan in perfect dart-throwing form, with his hat mostly over his eyes. He just looks so proper. I mean, he looks proper for the setting, and he looks proper as, as Patch. I don't know if I'd describe him as, as proper on a more objective scale. It's just nice to see him doing something other than standing on a pile of dead ninjas. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. The aforementioned pilot, Archie Corrigan, stomps in, and his bad mood is palpable. The usual, Trish. You don't have a usual, Archie. Find me one. And a few moments later, as Trish delivers Archie and Logan's drinks... Here, Archie. The usual. Again? You want anything, Patch? Yeah, peace in our time. And this is the thing, Peter David's grasp of dialogue and narration is overall very good. He usually does a good mix of serious and funny, like, say, an X-Factor, and here it is 
perfect. His Madripoor noir style is just delightful. So I think you are generally much more a fan of David's work than I am, which is part of why it stuck out to me here, because I think that it works here much, much better than it actually does in X-Factor. Yeah, well, either way, X-Factor aside, this arc, it's, it's just wonderful. It is wonderful. So our plot is a very convoluted one, and Archie explains at least the beginnings of it to Logan. Right, so Archie's dad was very wealthy, but he left his fortune to Archie's brother Bert, who is deeply eccentric, um, possibly mentally ill. All we know at this point is eccentric. Uh, Their Aunt Ruthie is trying to have Bert declared mentally incompetent so that she can become Bert's conservator and take control of the fortune. To Archie, on the other hand, Dad left $32, quote, one for each year of aggravation I gave him. We learn that Bert has a habit of thinking he's in famous movies, and he has sent Archie a letter saying that evil is after him. So Archie says, all right, Logan, I've helped you out. Do you remember that one time that a bad guy told me to kill you and I didn't? Uh, How about you come to San Francisco and help me out with this whole weird thing? Logan is iffy. He doesn't want to leave Madripoor. He's supposed to be dead. He doesn't want to get involved in someone else's family shenanigans. Jessica Drew, on the other hand, who's been listening in, is all in. She's she's like, hell yeah, let's go to San Francisco. Let's stick our nose in all kinds of business. She's actually still got an office in San Francisco, too, so she wants to go check up on that. So Logan leaves it to chance. As they pass by one of the Lowtown bars, he figures, all right, if this brawler who he's been, been encouraging to uh, keep joining back into the bar fight flies out the door, Logan's going to stay in Madripoor. If the brawler flies out the window, Logan's going to go to San Francisco and defenestration has it. So onto a plane they go. And it's kind of interesting because Logan thinks to himself as they're flying, he never really intended to have roots in Madripoor. That was just supposed to be his getaway. But now he's looking at the people around him and he realizes that he kind of has a second home. He wonders if he's ever going to have to choose between the two places. One of the things I love about Logan consistently is that he is a character who is very dedicated to the idea of being a loner and who ends up amassing family immediately wherever he is. Seriously, immediately. Like, he's a jerk, but he's just got such magnetism and charisma to him, and his good heart is uh, way more a part of his motivations than he likes to think that it is. Well, as he describes Cyclops in Secret Wars, he's a jerk, but he's our jerk. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. So, our trio of heroes goes and meets up with Bert, and he seems totally normal, unlike his reputation. He's just this balding guy with a mustache and glasses and a suit, just this mild-mannered academic researcher, and so they go on their way, at least for the moment, at least until tomorrow's competency hearing. But after they leave, turns out there's a little bit more going on with Bert than we know. He opens a drawer, and we see that it is full of a glowing small rock. For her part, Jessica goes to check on the aforementioned office that she's left gathering dust in San Francisco, and a client randomly happens to wander in in, like, the five minutes that she's there after being gone for months and months. Is this random, or have clients been trying to get to her, like, just continually since she left? I can just see all of these skeletons sitting in the waiting room with outdated magazines in front of them, just like highlights for children from a year before. From the 60s, somehow. I don't know if that magazine existed in the 60s or not. 
Turns out time flows differently. Jessica Drew's just been in Madripoor for a few months, but it's actually been decades since she left her practice. It's one of those one-way doors. Well, that and... no. Oh, see, I was riffing on the fact that waiting room magazines are always way out of date anyway. Ah, that's true. That's true. I wonder if the TVA has anything to say about that. Like, are they going to have to prune this entire timeline? Uh, I, I don't think they have, they have much say at this point. I'm not sure they even existed in 1988. Uh, they were created in Walter Simonson's run on Thor. Eh, I do not have a comics calendar in front of me. Anyway, the point is, this client, who is not a skeleton in a waiting room in front of a version of Highlights for Children from the 60s, is from the local Museum of Antiquities. Apparently somebody just stole a rare diamond from them. But it turns out the diamond that was stolen was a fake, because the original had already been stolen by somebody else. Also, relevantly, the second set of thieves were vampires. Well then. This thing has as many layers as a Coen Brothers movie about mutants and vampires. And far more vampires. Yeah, I don't think they've done a vampire movie, have they? Well, get on it, Coen Brothers. The next day, Bert is late for the competency hearing, which is not a good look, and just as Archie and Aunt Ruthie start yelling at each other, he arrives. Boy, does he ever arrive. In fact, he arrives through the window, crashing through the window, on a horse, and he is dressed, he, Bert, not the horse, is dressed as Indiana Jones, whip and all. And he's yelling about how vampires are after him, and everybody face palms. Until vampires crash through the window after him. Have I mentioned this story is a delight? It is tremendous, tremendous fun. And that takes us to number 12, same creative team except for colors by Glynis Oliver. And of course for this one, the title font is just straight up in the Indiana Jones logo font, because why the hell not? Lean in this comic. I'm really entertained that the title is Straits of San Francisco. Oh yeah, wasn't there an old movie called Streets of San Francisco? Not quite where I was going with that, but sure. (laughs) Well, anyway, there is a chaotic brawl in the courtroom between Logan and Jessica and the Corrigans and various cops and vampires. And during this brawl, we find out that the vampires are not exactly vampires. In addition to walking around in the daytime sun, which usually you have to either be blade or have Wolverine's blood and a clock on your neck to do, these vampires have Halloween costume fake fangs in their mouths. I love that. I don't know why vampires with fake fangs, or at least people pretending to be vampires with fake fangs, are something I find so consistently hilarious, but I do. Like, this is, this is, this is prime comedy for me. Do you remember that X-Files episode, Bad Blood? Yes. Oh, yes. That totally had that, too. So good. Yeah. There's also, um, a, a comic, a graphic novel called, uh, called Done to Death that, um, I'm not going to spoil that, but that has has a significant ongoing plot involving uh, fake fake vampire fangs. Nice. Well, Jessica slept in because she was up too late investigating for her client, and so she arrives in the middle of the chaos just as Bert is saddling up on his horse and trying to escape. So she just jumps right on the horse with him, and they are chased by vampires bickering about who gets to drive and who gets to shoot. And so Wolverine and Archie steal a cop car to chase after the vampires chasing after Bert. And they are chased by vampires who steal their own cop car. Also, some cops are chasing them, I think. Uh, yes, yes, also cops. It just, it just keeps going. And then it turns out that uh, Bert on the horse is actually chasing those cops. They're just going in a big circle. Uh, anyway, 
Bert on the horseback explains to Jessica, so these fake vampires are the followers of Bale, and they're after the remaining fragments of something called the Gehenna Stone. Bert knew that these followers were going to steal a fragment of the stone from the local Museum of Antiquities, so he was in fact the one who stole it first. He did this by making a massive donation and getting himself appointed to the board of directors so that he'd have access to it, so obviously this is a thing that's been going on for a while. As Jessica Drew puts it in response, Oh, jeez. Pretty much. And so this issue is basically just a great big multi-party chase scene on the uh, hilly streets of San Francisco. The first time I went to San Francisco, I was so surprised at how hilly it was, but it really, really is. Not everywhere can be Florida, Miles. That's probably for the best, to be honest. Absolutely. But it's great. Like, John Buscema, I I don't think a lot of people consider him one of the big breakout artists of comics, but he's an extremely solid visual storyteller, he's a good cartoonist in general, and he turns this into a gloriously cinematic chasing. It is straight out of a movie, which of course fits perfectly with Burt Corrigan. He's also a penciler who fits very, very well with Sienkiewicz's inks. Um, Sienkiewicz as an inker is, is, is very distinctive, and... Yeah, as as he is as a as a line artist, um, but he's there's there's a, a loose kind of animated quality to his inks that really really add to the sense of motion and sort of the sense of of, of frenetic action we get from Basima's pencils. And while the layouts are mostly standard, I think that in part makes it stand out more when they're not. So at one point, Logan actually catches a bullet across his skull. And the narrative captions sort of start falling at these irregular diagonal angles and between panels as he's hanging out the window, falling lower and lower as he tries to clear his head. And insisting. I refuse to die. Upside down. It's too... stupid. So, Wolverine decides, well, he's not going to die this way, but he's got his claws, and he latches onto the vampire's stolen cop car, letting it go just in time to crash it into a runaway trolley. Wait, wait, I've seen The Good Place. I don't think that's how the trolley problem works. This is sort of the reverse of the trolley problem. Oh, okay. I guess there normally aren't vampires in the trolley problem. Well, in the trolley problem, you control the trolley. Mm, mm, true, true, he just controls the car full of vampires. Exactly. Well, regardless, that takes us into Wolverine number 13, Blood Ties, colored by Mark Chiarello back from the first issue. The most important thing about this issue, and there are a lot of important things about this issue, gentle listeners, is that this is the issue where on page three, Logan launches out of a moving convertible, crotch first and upside down, at the cops who are now chasing the stolen car. So I was trying to think of the logic of Wolverine launching himself crotch first at a cop car, and it occurred to me that it really depends on how true he is to his code name. Wait, what? Well, he's got the whole adamantium coated skeleton, right? Right. Humans do not, but Wolverines have vacula. Are those penis bones? They are. Oh, so. It- Okay, okay. Well, he was originally supposed to be a literal wolverine who was mutated into someone more human-like, based on the original character concept by Dave Cockrum. Please join us next week for more intriguing debates like, does Wolverine have a baculum? Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, asking the big questions. 
<laughs> yeah. Although I don't know, maybe Logan launches himself more ass first? I mean, it's kind of ambiguous, like, he's angled such that it's about 50% ass, 50% crotch, but like, he's definitely presenting in a posterior fashion. Like a mandrel? Like a mandrel! I remember sending this page to you immediately after reading it, I was so delighted. I think like, one of my 10 tweets ever was a clipping from this page. Follow your weird heart. Or I guess if you're Wolverine, follow your ass. Or maybe your baculum. Well, after our heroes beat up all the bad guys and or cops using, you know, whatever, that means we have time for a cutscene where Bert explains what the hell is going on with all of this. Remember this. What I'm about to tell you is legend. Take no consolation in that. It's also true. So Bert's basically our favorite character in this arc, right? Oh yeah, Bert is fantastic. I love Bert. So here's the deal. In the ancient days, there was a place called Gehenna. Uh, I guess that's in the Bible, but I don't really know the Bible very well. But according to this comic, Refuse was burned there, but also a bunch of sinners did sins, which according to the art seems to mostly be dancing around ecstatically in front of a big fire while not wearing many clothes, so I don't know, maybe it's just Burning Man. Uh, also, they drank a bunch of human blood with... Fake vampire fangs? Uh, no, those won't come till later. In this case, with their leader, this freaky-looking greenish demon with pointy ears and giant sideburns and lots of forearm hair named Bale, who, come to think of it, aside from the green part, actually looks sort of like animalistic Wolverine in the 1997 comics we've mostly been covering. I don't really see it. Oh, well, maybe he's got too much of a nose here. Anyway, the point is, this was all terrible, and God was like, nah, no way, dude. So God sent a warrior called the Hand of God to kill Baal and his followers. When you say the Hand of God, should we assume that he sent one warrior, or should we assume that he in fact sent five warriors, one for each finger of the hand? Oh, what is this, a Passover Seder? That's what I was going for. <laughs> nice. This is the Old Testament, it's true, so it fits. Well, Bale, like any good D&D monster, after his body was killed, sent his soul to escape to a gem that his minions had prepared. But the hand of God has fought liches in D&D before, so he smashed that gem and threw the pieces in all directions, which were not to be reassembled until Doomsday. Although it's kind of ambiguous. Is it that when Doomsday comes, they'll be reassembled? Or when they're reassembled, that will mean it's Doomsday? I think it's mostly just using Doomsday as a nebulous, distant future date. I don't think it's ever as certain as, you know, this is going to mean the end of the world, or this will happen when the world starts to end, just, you know, like, this won't be just, you know, this won't be reassembled till, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I was trying to think of something unpredictable and far futuristic, but honestly, I've kind of given up on that. Fair. But also, this is the Marvel Universe. I mean, Doomsday is an annual holiday in Latveria, right? Oh, that's a really good point. Oh, man. Well, that complicates things. Anyway, over the last couple years in the present day, which has an annual Doomsday, we assume, the pieces of the gem have been disappearing. Hence, Bert buying his way onto the museum's board of directors and stealing one of the gems to protect it. And now apparently a descendant of Bale, the reincarnation of Bale, who knows, has risen up and is trying to reassemble the stone to create a race of vampires. As one does. Now, the stone itself, aside from holding the soul or the essence of Bale, may have some other properties. 
it's unclear at this point because the only person we've seen handle it is Bert, and he's the only person we're gonna see handle it for a while because when Logan asks to see it, Bert basically goes full Gollum. Oh yeah, he is Smeagol-tacular here, like, no, it's mine! And Bert has been, I mean, okay, he's he's a weird dude, but he's never been a jerk, and now he's kind of being a jerk. But on the other hand, all we really know about him, aside from what we've seen, is that he's he's a little bit off, so we don't know if this is within the normal scope of Bert behavior. Smeagol and friends make it to the hangar, so it's time to fly back to Madripoor, because San Francisco is full of vampires and fucked up. Yeah, not a lot of good things happen in San Francisco to X-Men, at least in this era. Oh yeah, good point. The whole Marauders thing was around then, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Alas, our heroes were expected by dozens of fake vampires. The hangar is just full of vampires. Fake ones. With fake fangs. You know, they keep saying that, but they do look pretty monstery. So that's weird. I totally agree, because John Buscema, he draws them as looking almost like zombies, like they have very gray skin, their teeth are pointy, their clothes are ripped up, their fingernails are long. It kind of reminds me of that X-Men Unlimited issue where Captain Bloodscream assembled his ghost pirate crew, which we are assured are just kidnapped normal modern people, but they all look like pirate zombies. Yeah, those were good times. As is appropriate, it's our main hero who finds the main baddie, Logan, confronts Bale. And Bale kicks Logan's ass. As Logan says, I make him mad, but I figure that's okay. I wrote the book on mad. Then he plucks me out of the air like I'm nothing, and I suddenly realize that maybe I wrote the book, but it looks like he published it. So... I have opinions on captions that describe fight scenes while they're happening. And basically my opinion is is they've got to add something significant to it. This is one of the times where they really, really work. Because Logan is basically, he's a hard-boiled narrator. Um, and it makes perfect sense to have that stuff in his voice as kind of counterpoint to the action we're seeing playing out on the page. It is freaking great. Like, we've talked about how much we love Larry Hama's version of Logan, and I really like Peter David's as well. In fact, it's almost like a proto-Larry Hama version. He's not quite as old-timey prospector as Hama's, but he's clearly on his way. Yeah, like, this This feels like the, the not-quite-formed not quite version of that. Well, the bad guys are in fact driven off, but they get the stone. So that brings us to Wolverine number 14, Flying Wolves, which is colored by Greg Wright. Now, back in 13, we also saw a B-plot during which two beefy twin brothers headed to the princess bar with a fancy gem they had just stolen, and that they fight about it, going back and forth from the best buds to enraged, and finally end up killing each other in the middle of the night as their petty jealousies flare into violence and greed. It's, it's actually genuinely sad, because when they're in the good part of that seesaw of emotions. I mean, they're twin brothers. They love each other so much. They're the most important people to each other. They're so excited that they stole this gem and can be rich and awesome together. And yeah, then, um, murder. Now, at the princess, O'Donnell finds the brothers' corpses, and he immediately pockets the stone, and he, like Bert, goes all Gollum when the police try to take it. Lindsay McCabe, who we are reminded is in fact in Madripoor, shows up later and checks the stone out, and she can't get it off her mind. In fact, she comes back and tries to seduce O'Donnell just to get her hands on it. 
And man, something about Sienkiewicz's inks here works so well for this seduction scene. I would seldom describe inks, especially these really scratchy inks, as sexy, but they work. They, for some reason, this scene just becomes, like, incredibly hot, for lack of a better way of putting it. Even if everyone's kind of brainwashed by a magic stone, but, you know, it's comic, so that happens. Well, it doesn't go too far, because immediately the prince's men show up and nab the stone away. Now, back on the plane, Bert is disconsolate with his stone gone, and Jess has also decided that, no, she needs to get it back, and she needs to take it to the prince whom she's working for. Luckily, dubiously luckily for them, the vampires also have a plane, and are also headed back to Madripoor, so Archie is able to sort of line his plane up over the vampires, and Jess straight up jumps out of their plane and down onto the bad guy's plane, and is followed closely by Logan, now in full Wolverine duds. It took 14 issues of Logan's solo series for him to wear his Wolverine costume in his own book, and I know that was kind of deliberate on Claremont's part. Claremont always figured, okay, if we're going to have a Wolverine series, it shouldn't just be standard X-Men shit, he should be doing his own thing. At the same time, it's really satisfying to see this, especially because it's that brown and orange Wolverine costume that I love so much. It's also a good window into the ways that Wolverine or Logan compartmentalizes the different parts of his identity in life. Totally. Now, as it turns out, Jess knew who he was all along. Well, that stinks. We find out, we're going to find out next issue that O'Donnell and Lindsay also knew that Patch was Wolverine. Logan's really baffled when he finds this out. He's like, wait, everybody knew? Seriously? Why didn't someone tell me? And I love Jessica's response. When somebody with claws and a temper wants to believe he's fooling people, well, no one wants to be the one to say... Hey, Wolfie, what's with the stupid eye patch? Peter David is good at a number of things in comics, and I think one of them is taking genuinely dumb continuity stuff, pointing out, hey, this is kind of silly, right, people? And yet not feeling like he's making fun of it. So, going back to the scene, Bert tosses down a rope ladder, theoretically so that Logan and, and Jess can make their way back up, but the vampires immediately jump onto it, and what we get at this point is a massive fight scene that takes place between two planes midair, in which nobody involved can fly. Right, like, the planes can fly, but these are not flying superheroes. None of them have that ability. Like, Jessica and Logan are somewhat superpowered, but not in that direction. Yeah, Jessica can kind of stick to things, which is a germane superpower in this. Logan's just sharp and heavy. And durable. In one panel, I counted. He is shot 14 times simultaneously, and he's fine. He's come a long way from his Phoenix Saga days, where a single good gunshot would take him out for a while. Now, the good guys manage to get away, and the vampire plane ultimately explodes, but it's clear that Bale has survived in some form as we go into Wolverine number 15, Homecoming, colored by Glynis Oliver. So the cover of this one is... A little strange. Like, it's a good cover. I actually really like all of these covers. They're all done by Kevin Nolan, and they're they're beautiful. But this one has Logan running toward the, the camera, as it were. But then he's in the corner box in the top left in the exact same pose, but reversed. And that'll be his corner box image for many, many issues to come. And... I don't know, it just it just unsettles me for some reason to have that same image twice, but two different sizes and each facing the opposite direction. Anyway, 
In Madripoor, the cops are violently ransacking the town. They're trying to find the stone fragment because, like everyone else who's seen it, they are now obsessed with it. As Logan comes back, he sees that O'Donnell and Lindsay are literally coming to blows in the princess bar. Has the whole town gone nuts? And Lindsay replies, Right! Nuts! As she kicks O'Donnell in the crotch, I am a man of simple tastes. I find this hilarious. Wolverine finally puts together that A, it's the rock that's doing this to people, and B, that rock is another piece of the Gehenna Stone. And he claims it doesn't affect him. Because I'm always nasty. Meanwhile, on the streets of Madripoor, Bert and Jessica save a woman from more so-called vampires. And it makes sense that Jessica would do a good job. She may not be very super right now, but she has been a superhero, and she still is very much a hero and has powers. But I gotta give it to Bert Corrigan. In his Indiana Jones persona, he does a pretty good rescue job. He's brave and he's tough, and he uses a bullwhip really well, which raises some questions. Oh yeah, Bert clearly knows what he's doing, which is a lot of fun. They're such a fun pair, too. There's this great side-view panel after they save this woman when they're chasing after the bad guys of Jessica, like, charging forward heroically, and he's just behind her holding his hat and running stiff-backed like he's some kind of Scooby-Doo character. It's such a wonderful contrast between the two of them. One of the things I really like about Bert is that while he's silly, he always acquits himself really, really well in both inter- you know, character interplay and in action. Yeah, Bert's great. Bert Corrigan has only appeared in this single six-issue storyline, and I don't know if that's tragic because he's so much fun, or if it's wonderful because it means that his only story appearance is glorious. Yeah, he's great. So, once they, they route the vampires, Jess follows one back to the prince's castle, where it turns out Bale is the prince's honored guest, leading into Wolverine number 16, Electric Warriors, colored again by Glynis Oliver, and The End of the Ark. Now, the prince does not believe that Bale is evil, and the reason he doesn't believe that Bale is evil is that Bale has offered to buy the stone instead of just trying to take it. And also, Bale has offered him immortality, so clearly he must be on the up and up. And Jessica tries to explain, uh, in a similar fashion to young Fred explaining the plot in the Beatles movie Yellow Submarine, and the prince says that's absurd. It's not absurd. It's okay. It's absurd, but it's true. Jessica Drew is so much fun. I've read almost no Spider-Woman, but during her era of being a recurring character in Wolverine's solo book, I love her so much. Now, the prince's affection for Bale only lasts until Bale is slightly rude, and then the prince is done, at which point Bale also abandons any pretense of civility, and rips the stone straight out of the body of the prince's aide who had swallowed it. Wolverine shows up in the middle of the ensuing fight in costume, just in time for Bale to reassemble the full stone and turn his followers into actual vampires. And I guess this answers the question of whether they were supposed to be vampires in the art before, but the narration was just saying they weren't, because they are significantly more monstery than they were before after the transition. So I guess before they were just, I don't know, like, um, dirty? Maybe that's why they're gray? Maybe they were just wearing, like, vampire makeup. That could be. I mean, if they're wearing fake fangs, I feel like if you're a truly dedicated cultist, you do the whole damn thing. You fully cosplay. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now, 
Bale himself has also somehow fundamentally changed. His scent is different, and he seems genuinely scared of Wolverine. And as the scene progresses, it becomes clearer that he is mistaking Wolverine for the hand of God. Yeah, that warrior that killed him way back in the Torah days. So Bale is winning his fight with Wolverine until Bert shows up via a window and Indiana Jones whips the stone away from Bale. It's great. It's such a good moment. I love Bert. Me too. We keep hearing about how he's delusional, and yes, he does seem to think he's all these fictional characters to at least some extent, but the thing is, the characters he picks are the ones who would be really good in the situations that he's in. Like, is it delusional to pretend to be a pulp hero if you're in a pulp adventure that requires a pulp hero? I would argue that what he's doing is less delusion than a coping mechanism. It's clear that he doesn't actually believe that he's Indiana Jones. Um, there are points where he he calls Jessica... I think he calls he calls her Marion and she corrects him and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, of course you're Jessica. Um and like it's it's clear that he has a sense of reality. Um, but these are, you know, these are the roles that he needs at the time, and it feels like he's he's just he's he's using them as a sort of social shorthand. Well, and anyway, he's just as much Simon Belmont as Indiana Jones. He's whipping a freaking vampire. What's he gonna do next? Throw some holy water? Get a silk bag from the graveyard duck to live longer? Unfortunately, Bale manages to get the stone back before Wolverine can get a hit in. Fortunately, Wolverine summarizes the rest of the fight, so I don't have to. He fries me faster than my healing power can handle. In a couple of seconds, I'm going to be a walking adamantium skeleton and a few shreds of skin. I'm completely blind, and I do something I haven't done in ages. I pray. Not the light, easy, hope to God this works praying, but an earnest, sincere plea for a higher being to guide my hand. And I strike. And even as I hear the stone shatter, I slam down my foot, pivot off it, spin, and stab him, aiming for the kill. His screams are washed away by what I'm feeling. It's like a circuit has been completed. His life, his dark energy, flows into one claw, through my body, and out, as if I'm a conduit. A conduit to something greater. Something beyond our understanding. Okay, then. So yeah, Bale's, uh, pretty dead. The stone was shattered, so when his body died, his soul couldn't go into it. That's it for Bale, at least until the Larry Hama written Blaze series in 1994. Now, we get some denouement at the end. Bert has disappeared, but Logan at least is confident that he'll be fine wherever and whoever he is. As it turns out in a brief epilogue, James Bond. Yeah. Good old Bert. And that's where we leave him. We never see him again. I can only hope that he's been playing various fictional characters and doing a great job every time since 1980-whatever. I love him. I wish him only joy. Me too. I do have a question about this arc, though. So we know, and in fact Jessica Drew reminds us, that this Bale was either a reincarnation of the original Bale, uh, or a descendant, or something like that, and she theorizes that Logan may be the same as far as the Hand of God, a reincarnation or a descendant. And in fact, if you go to the Marvel database, which I realize is not canonical, but is certainly the biggest source of canon we've seen on the internet, when you click on the Hand of God link in this issue's entry, it just redirects you to James Howlett, Earth 616. So, Jay, is Logan the hand of God? Is he just straight up the chosen warrior of the Judaic deity? He is in this battle. 
Whether that's a situational role or an ongoing identity is never clear. I would argue that it makes the most sense for it to be a situational role. I suppose that's true. So perhaps, for this once, the Marvel database might want to amend itself. Now, you're not the only one with questions. We put out a call to our listeners and we heard back from quite a few of you. Tim asked us on Twitter, If Wolverine's claws are stored in his forearms when not in use, shouldn't they not be able to extend when his wrists are even a tiny bit flexed, or else they'd rip through his hands and come out in the wrong place? Uh, yeah, Tim, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and in fact, as Jay and I both independently remembered because this stuck with us, as it were, in Wolverine's, with a plural, number 11, uh, there's a flashback where Logan was super drunk and uh, accidentally snicked his claws right through the backs of his hands and out his palms. But that was also a flashback told by the character Fang, the former Shi'ar Imperial Guard member, and Fang isn't necessarily a reliable narrator. It does make anatomical sense, though. It does, right? I actually always wondered the same thing about Spider-Man's web shooters. Like, even if those buttons on his palms are touch capacitive rather than just pressure sensitive, which would make sense, he's still got to web his hands on the regular. I mean, I'm thinking about how many times I butt dial people on my smartphone, and that's like through the liner of my front pocket. So, uh, I don't know. It's got sticky crap everywhere, probably. Well, Peter's web shooters are on the backs of his arms, right? The backs of his wrists? No, they're, they're on the inside. Oh, they're on the inside. Yeah. Okay, never mind. My, my mental image of this was entirely off. I knew the button was on the inside. For some reason, I thought the web shooters were on the backs. Obviously, this is not Jay and Miles Explain Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yeah, that Liefeld Simonson character. He got so popular. Finally got his own movie, then a sequel. Ian Reynolds did good. Yeah, yeah, he did. Thank you, Bear, asks on Twitter. Has there been any alternate timelines where Wolverine was bonded with a different metal? Oh, hell yes, there has. Governor General James Howlett, and that's Logan's counterpart on Earth-12025, has his skeleton bonded with adamantine, the metal of the gods. And he tells people about it every time he can. He's so excited. Also, he's married to Hercules. Is that basically our favorite version of Logan across the multiverse? Oh, he's definitely mine. Yeah, I think mine too, actually. He's so fun. He's just delightful. 100% delightful. There's also a lot of discussion online that I found when I was looking into this question about what would happen if Logan's skeleton was covered in vibranium instead of adamantium. Uh, the short version is he wouldn't be so heavy since you don't need to use as much. Uh, he could basically disintegrate metal things he was cutting as long as it was vibranium B, not A, in his claws. And maybe after he got punched a lot, he could release a big blast of energy. I don't know. He might also be a very large tuning fork. Oh, he could hang out on Black Bolt's forehead. Is small enough. Jake Saunders, PhD, asks on Twitter, Logan's original appeal was his mysterious past and loner attitude. Now more detail has been written about his origin than probably any X-Men, and he has acted as a good friend, lover, surrogate father to most major X-Men. Was this inevitable, or could Logan's mysterious loner charm have been maintained if specific narrative and continuity decisions were made differently? That's a really good question. I guess, here's the way I look at it. I feel like characters need to bounce off other characters to stay interesting, even in a solo comic. And of course, the more they do that, the longer they go, like you implied, the more relationships they form. I mean, even the Punisher has some friends. Probably all dead by now, but still. I have two different opinions about the two aspects of this. I am all for the Logan who forms connections and is grumpy about it. Like, I think that is a delightful spin on the character and one that really only improves it. 
However, I'm not a huge fan of scrolling out and making canonical his backstory. I think keeping that vague and keeping it mysterious and keeping it self-contradictory would have been the better choice. I don't know. At the same time, I feel like you get diminishing returns with that. If you just keep having new wrinkles and new wrinkles and new wrinkles to the backstory, or if you just never mention it at all, that I feel like that might get old after a while. I actually kind of appreciate that Logan's mysterious past isn't a thing anymore. It lets them not focus on it and just focus on the present a little more. Mm, see, I think I think you could still do that and make it work without having, you know, this is the whole story from the beginning in its absolutely 100% true canon, never to be contradicted in the future version. Well, also valid. Also valid. But about the family thing, so I really like Logan's progression from mysterious berserker asshole to murder uncle to one of the biggest family man style characters in X-Men. I think that kind of culminated, for me at least, in Jason Aaron's Wolverine in the X-Men series. And I thought it made a good enough ending to Logan's story thematically that I kind of wish he hadn't come back when he died right after that in Death of Wolverine. Yeah, agreed. Pharaoh Cat asks on Twitter, If Wolverine can regenerate from a drop of blood, why aren't there multiple Wolverines everywhere from each time he got injured or caught himself shaving? So, Wolverine has only regenerated from a drop of blood, as far as I know, once in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 11, and there was a magical crystal involved. So while his regenerative powers have amped way, way, way up over the years, um, and that was kind of the start of it, I don't think there's much, much, much danger of, of us, you know, getting a whole army of Wolverines every time he's cut. It is a hilarious mental image, though, and maybe that would explain why he's in so many comics at the same time. And, you know, to be fair, we uh, certainly have joked about that drop of blood thing a lot. I don't know, though. I mean, there was that time where anything could happen to him and he would literally duel the incarnation of death and then come back. So, yeah, if he got ripped in half, left to right, would each half duel half of the incarnation of death? And this is getting confusing. These are important questions. This is this, these are the kind of important questions that I feel like we, we should we should be calling canon authors in the middle of the night and demanding that they explain. Hey, hey, Benjamin Percy. Hey, Benjamin Percy, we're we are waiting for you, Benjamin Percy. <laughs> There's so much we need to know so much. They did just announce that the next uh, House of X and Powers of X style series is going to be Life and Death of Wolverine, uh, which is going to be led by Benjamin Percy. I have no idea what that's going to be like. It's intriguing. Hopefully they will firmly establish what happens if he's cut in half vertically. turns out that's actually the premise of the entire pair of series. Yeah. Oh, oh, one of the series is about each half. Hey! Rebecca Cronenfeld asks on Twitter, Over the years, we've seen Logan join a number of different teams outside of the X-Men. What's one team he has never been a member of you think he might be a good fit on for an extended period of time? So as we record this, I'm a few days out from having seen the trailer for the upcoming video game. I think it's called Rise of the Midnight Suns. And the trailer kicked ass. And on it, Logan is teaming up with a bunch of, like, magic-y, supernaturally dark horror characters, including Ilyana and Sister Grimm, uh, to, to fight Lilith, and it's it's awesome. And so I would love to see Logan in the comics on a team fighting dark supernatural shit as well, like the Darkhold Redeemers or their equivalent. Like, I think he could bring that sort of everyman charm that he somehow still has despite being fucking Wolverine to a team that was mostly a bunch of wizard types, and that would be really fun. 
Oh God. Yeah. I, I feel like he's, he's, he's just incredibly well suited to basically playing the Quincy Morris role. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Oh, oh dude. Historical, um, historical piece. I would, I would very much like it to be canonically established that Bram Stoker had a big old crush on Wolverine because he would. Entirely reasonable. I mean, both for that to be a fact of history and having a crush on Wolverine. So, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, thank you. And some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the air from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The mic today goes to everyone's favorite villain who totally, definitely knows what sex is, Shinobi Shaw. Ah, Wolverine is fighting a vampire. Poor dead daddy told me about vampires. They drink blood, they can turn into bats, blah blah blah. What I most recall is that the lord of the vampires is the sexiest of all creatures, able to induce irresistible desire for vampire sex with a single glance. This vampire lord's name is... Bale. That doesn't sound like the name Daddy told me about, but it must be the same vampire lord. Bale of Castle Sexy Bale. Of course. Yes, it was definitely Bale, not Dracu, whatever. This vampire. Of course, we already know all the sex ways, Jimmy Berkey, but we might as well learn what we can from Bale, just in case we can somehow be sexier. We need tiny stones. As many stones as we can find. The tinier, the better. And bring lots of glue, for we must assemble them into a sex orb. And Michael Manlove, my very sexy friend, I am given to understand that to be more like Sexy Bale, we must wear some accessories. Sex-cessories. Did you see what I did there? Of course you did. Help me put in these fake vampire teeth. Yeah, like that. And we will be sexier than ever before. Now put in your own. Bale. Are we sexy yet? Are we? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, along with original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air, and ad-free, and with a lifetime supply of fake vampire fangs, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's Hawk Talk, but we'll be back in two weeks... With the beginning of Onslaught. Onslaught.